Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi. Uh, so, um, you know, we've been having a phenomenal season, I would say. Yes. Of our podcast. So many different topics, some wonderful guests. Delightful guests. You know, going back, going back to our to our roots, as my mother likes to say. <laughs> She's not from Minnesota. No, but she spent every summer in Minnesota until she was like in her twenties. So that's why she still says "bought" <laughs> and "phone." Like my phone isn't working. Look at that big "bought." And she says "roots" and milk. Anyway, <clears throat> aside from Nancy. Um, I figured that we might do something, one, a little spooky. Oh, yep. a little summer spookiness. A little summer spooky. And also, two, something a little local. Oh. Local to us, where we are right now. So um, today, I'm going to be telling you all about the fabulous Fox Sisters. Now, did you say fabulous or fabulist? I said fabulous. Mm. And we are going to talk about that particular title in a second. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the fabulous Fox sisters. Do you know anything about the Fox sisters? I, I know a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I as feel part like- of the Rochester history uh, yes. community. <laughs> I was going to say. You you are like a co-editor of the Rochester History Magazine, isn't that correct? I was, I was on the editorial board of the Rochester mm-hmm. History Journal for like six years. Like, no no big deal. No big deal. Um, but the Fox Sisters are are very beloved around here. Also in uh, in Buffalo in the Buffalo area as well. Like Western New York just loves the Fox Sisters. So let's start it off. So one of the greatest religious movements of the 19th century basically began in the bedroom of two like young girls, basically. This is like the equivalent of like a software company starting in a garage in the 1970s. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But much But religion. Less, but religion, exactly. Um, so these two young girls, the Fox sisters, they lived in a farmhouse in Hydesville, New York. Now, Hydesville no longer exists, um, oh. but it is essentially Arcadia, which is in Wayne County, which is actually just east of here. Okay. Um, it's like little past Menden. So it's like out that way. Uh, that was like, so for all of you who are familiar with the uh, Monroe and Wayne counties, that's some directions for you. <laughs> everything in Monroe County is only 20 minutes away from everything else in Monroe County. Yes. So, mm-hmm. so it's 20 Wayne minutes County's- and then go like another 20 minutes. And then you're there. You're in, you're in formerly Hydesville. So um, in late March in 1848, Margareta Maggie Fox, so we'll call her Maggie from here on out. She was 14. And Kate, who was her 11-year-old sister, they... Um, they got in touch with a neighbor. They like ran over to a neighbor's house and they were really excited because they had, they wanted to tell them their neighbor about this crazy thing that had happened to them. They said every night around bedtime, they would hear a series of raps on the walls and the furniture that seemed to manifest with this kind of weird otherworldly intelligence. <laughs> so the neighbor was like, show me what you got. I want to see this for myself. So she Joined the girls in their small bedroom that they shared with their parents. Again, this was like a farmhouse, so sure. there was like one bedroom. Um, so Maggie and Kate sat together on their bed, and their mother, whose name was Margaret, began like kind of led this demonstration. 
So she ordered this spirit or whatever, we're going to call it a spirit to count five. And then the room shook with like these super heavy thuds and it was five heavy thuds. And then she commanded count 15 and the mysterious presence counted 15 with these big thuds. And then she asked to tell the neighbor's age, which was 33. And then 33 heavy thuds. That's a lot of thuds. I know. That's a lot of waiting around. Like, okay, I get it. Once you get to 27, you're like, all right, it knows. Okay. Well, they didn't didn't have TV, you know? There's no TV. So all they got is time to count, you know, thuds. Um, And then she said, if you are an injured spirit manifested by three raps. And so it did. So... Margaret Fox, the mother, uh, was fully believed this 100%. She thought her daughters were, you know, in touch with some sort of otherworldly spirit. And unfortunately, she did not really consider the date, which was March 31st, which was April Fool's Eve, and the possibility that her daughters were not actually being, <laughs> being, you know, visited by an unseen presence, but that she was actually being pranked by two preteen girls. <laughs> I almost said, I don't think March 31st is the real date, Lauren. <laughs> no, <laughs> but it is but April it is. Fo- the night before April 4th. Right, right. No, but I meant like, I didn't think it was on the calendar. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like on, I think it's Parks and Rec where April schedules all of Ron's yeah. appointments. I think for like, yeah, Mar- it might have been March 31st because she was like, yeah, that date doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the girls addressed the spirit as Mr. Splitfoot. Oh. Which, is the, which is a nickname for the devil, apparently was a 19th century nickname for the devil, which is gross. Um, so later, this alleged entity created the sounds claiming to be the spirit of a peddler named Charles B. Rosna, who had been murdered five years earlier and was reportedly buried in their cellar. So later in his writings on the Fox sisters, Arthur Conan Doyle claimed that the neighbors dug up the cellar and found a few pieces of bone. Oof. Um. But uh, alas, no missing person named Charles B. Rosna was ever identified or ever known to even oh, exist. Oh, okay. Um, and that he was buried in the Fox house or the neighbor's yes, house? Yes, okay. the Fox house. Yes. Yeah, so they thought it was his, the pe- this murdered peddler's spirit that was manifesting. <laughs> my, my reaction to almost everything that you're saying is like, okay, no further questions. Like yeah. the mother's <laughs> just like, yep, she's talking to spirits. Great. And the kids are like, yep, there's a dead body in the basement. No further <laughs> <Yep>. questions. <laughs> yep. All set. Well, apparently they the parent their parents were freaked out enough that they sent them to, to Rochester to live with their elder siblings. So Kate went to her their sister Leah's house. Her she was married. Her name was Leah Foxfish. And uh, Maggie went to the home of her brother David, but these mysterious knocks followed them. Ooh. Yeah. So uh the 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 news of these like girls who could speak to spirits kind of reached local people, Amy and Isaac post. They were uh, a radical Quaker couple um, and they were longstanding friends of the Fox family. They invited the girls to their Rochester home to kind of see what they were going to do with that. Um, They were immediately convinced of the genuineness of the phenomena and they helped spread the word among their radical Quaker friends who became this early core of spiritualists. Interesting. The posts were also good friends of Frederick Douglass. Yes, they were. They were abolitionists. They were really on like the cutting edge of like progressive politics in this region at that time. Um, And in this way, because of this kind of connection that the posts had, and it wasn't just them, it was like their whole Quaker sect. 
Um, there was a strong association between spiritualism and radical political causes, such as the aforementioned abolition, temperance, and equal rights for women. So during the late 19th century, there is this very deep connection between progressive politics and believing that ghosts are speaking to us. No further questions. <laughs> no further questions. So on November 14th, 1849, the Fox sisters demonstrated their spiritualist wrappings at the Corinthian Hall in Rochester. Uh, the Corinthian Hall no longer exists. It burned down, I think, in like 1880. Um, but this was the first public demonstration of spiritualism held before a paying public and inaugurated a long history of public events featured by spiritualist mediums and leaders in the United States and in other countries. So this is arguably the first time that this has become like a public spectacle as opposed to something you would do in your living room mm. kind of thing. So it may, this whole phenomenon may have just kind of like died off there. If it weren't for the fact that Rochester itself was kind of a hotbed for reform and religious activity, um, the same vicinity, the Finger Lakes region of New York state, which provides us with so many delicious wines and cheeses also gave birth to both Mormonism and Millerism. Um, and Millerism is the precursor to seventh day Adventism. Mm. Um, so this idea that one could communicate with spirits is obviously not a brand new thing. The Bible contains hundreds of references to, you know, angels talking to people. Um, but this movement known as modern spiritualism kind of sprang from several distinct revolutionary philosophies and characters. So we're just going to get into that very briefly okay. because these girls, these two little girls who were just like playing a prank on their mom and their neighbor kind of sort of fell into this, this culture that was really ready for, to believe in like weirdness and spirits and the afterlife and all of this mm -hmm. stuff. So the ideas and practices of Franz Anton Mesmer, where we get the word mesmerize, mm -hmm. um, he was an 18th century Australian healer and that had spread to the United States uh, by the 1840s. And Mesmer proposed that everything in the universe, including the human body, was governed by a, quote, magnetic fluid that could become imbalanced, causing illness. And this is kind of goes back to this idea of like, um, you know, the the four, uh, you know, like phlegm and bile and uh, sanguination. The humors. Yeah. The humors, thank you. So it, it kind of goes back to like, it's similar to the humors. So by waving his hands over a patient's body, he induced a mesmerized hypnotic state that allowed him to manipulate the magnetic force and restore health. Um, amateur mesmerists became a popular attraction at parties and in parlors and a few proving skillful enough to attract paying customers. I feel like and Charles some, Dickens was into that. Yeah. I, f I feel like he was, that seemed like his kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like he would be into that if only so that he could get some like material for his next <laughs> book or whatever and like come up with some funny names for people such an asshole. Anyway, um, so some people were awakened from a mesmeric trance, claimed to ex have experienced visions of spirits from another dimension. So this, you know, further, furthered this culture of, you know, weirdness yeah. in the otherworldly. So at the same time, the ideas of Emanuel Swedenborg, who was an 18th century Swedish philosopher and mystic, um, also surged in popularity. Um, he described an afterlife consisting of three heavens, three hells, and an interim destination, which was the world of the spirits, where everyone went immediately upon dying and which was more or less similar to what, what they were accustomed to on earth. So self-love drove one towards the varying degrees of hell. Love for others elevated one to the heavens. And he wrote, the Lord casts no one into hell, but those who are there have deliberately cast themselves into it and keep themselves there. And he claimed to have seen and talked with spirits on all of the planes. 
So this guy was like, <laughs> he was like, this is a, tour, some John Edwards. Yeah, some tour guide of yeah. all the heavens and hells, all that stuff. So 75 years later, the 19th century American seer Andrew Jackson Davis, who had become known as the John the Baptist of modern spiritualism, kind of combined these two ideologies. Um, and he claimed that Swedenborg's spirit spoke to him during a series of trances. Of course, like, you know, I, I have the blessing from the guy who's been dead for ages. Um, he recorded the contents of this messages and in 1847 published them in a voluminous tome titled The Principles of Nature, Her Divine Revelations, and A Voice to Mankind. Uh, he wrote, it is a truth that spirits commune with one another while one is in the body and the other is in the higher spheres. All the world will hail with delight the ushering of in of that era when the interiors of men will be opened and the spiritual communication will be established. Is it a and big believe- bestseller? Uh, I, no, with a title like, like a, that. Yeah, I know. I don't think so. I'm going to punch that up a little. Yeah, you need a shorter title. People like that yeah. more. Like, I talk to ghosts! <laughs> Exclamation point. <laughs> My story. Um, he actually believed that his prediction materialized a year later on the very day the Fox sisters first channeled spirits in their bedroom. So he was like a true believer. He was like, ha ha, I told you all. March 31st. March 31st. It'll all happen on March 31st. <laughs> Just you wait. Um, in his diary, he confided, about daylight this morning, a warm breathing passed over my face and I heard a voice, tender and strong, saying, brother, the good work has begun. Behold, a living demonstration is born. So he heard about the Rochester incident, as we will be calling it. So he invited his, the Fox sisters to his home in New York City. And he was like, I want to see you do this. Show me. And of course they showed him and he was like, I love it. You're it. You're, you're my girls. We're going to make this happen. We're going to bring people to the cause. Um, so this elevated his stature from obscure prophet to recognized leader of a mass movement. And this is one that appealed to increasing number of Americans kind of inclined to reject the gloomy Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. So <clears throat> those of you who are unfamiliar with this idea of Calvinism, Calvinism is basically this, you know, like, Christian sect that basically means that um, there are only a predetermined amount of people who will go to heaven. They ha- they have their names in a book. There's nothing anybody else can do about trying to get to heaven. You just got to hope that you are one of the chosen. Yeah, the but also you should still be good. Oh, in yeah. In case you're one of the ones on the exactly. list. Exactly. Yes. I mean, I'm being slightly reductive, but that's basically it. <laughs> so people started getting tired of this, like, well, why should I even bother if I'm, you know, there's a very good chance that I might not even be picked. So these people started embracing the reform-minded optimism of this, of this spiritualism. So unlike their Christian contemporaries, Americans who adopted spiritualism believe that they had a hand in their own salvation and direct communication with those who had passed away offered insight into the ultimate fate of their own soul. So it was kind of like a cheat code basically where they were like, Ooh, uh, you know, if I can talk to, spirits and they can tell me like what God wants me to do kind of thing. Or if I'm going to go to heaven, then that's my way of getting where I want to go. So Maggie, Kate and their eldest sister, Leah embarked on this professional tour to spread word of the spirits. Um, they eventually booked a suite at Barnum's hotel at the corner of Broadway and maiden lane kind of fitting that it would be Mm. at Barnum's hotel. It was actually, uh, it was actually owned by a cousin of PT Barnum, but still, um, so there was an editorial in the Scientific American, and it was basically like scoffed at their arrival. They called the girls the spiritual knockers from Rochester, which is <laughs> oh, like, oh, oh, sick burn. Wow. Yeah, I know. Right. Wow. Yikes. Um, so they conducted their 
sessions in the hotel's parlor. They invited as many as 30 attendees to gather around a large table at the hours of 10 a.m., 5 p.m., and 8 p.m. Um, and then they would occasionally take a private meeting in between. Um, admission was $1. Uh, and people came from all over, and they, were, it, they had some celebrities amongst their midst. Uh, visitors included preeminent members of New York Society, Horace Greeley, um, the influential editor of the New York Tribune, James Fenimore Cooper, uh, editor and poet William Cullen Bryant, and abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who witnessed a session in which the spirits rapped in time to a popular song and spelled out a message which was, spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform. So, so you know, for, for people out there who are wondering yeah. what this would have looked like. So, basically, they're sitting at a table. Yep. Uh, they're sitting around the table. Yep. And the girls are like, here we are about to talk to spirits. And they have their hands on top of the table. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you yep. know, no funny business. Right. No funny We're just business. sitting here. Our hands are on top of the table, everybody. <laughs> and then you're sitting around the table and you're asking the spirits questions. And then they're getting like. Yes. Like a like a sharp cracking sound mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that would reverberate through the room. Okay. That sounded like it was coming Super from... Super loud. Yes. That okay. would be coming from nowhere. Okay. They couldn't pinpoint where it would come from. And that was part of their success was that apparently people, humans, have a really hard time because we, we don't have very good ears. Not as good ears as like other, other predators. So our ears aren't really good at determining where a sound is coming from. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so they... Not like these girls knew that, but... <laughs> This is part part of the reason why they were so successful for so long because you couldn't actually tell where the sound was coming from as a layperson. Um, Leah kind of became their, like, I mean, even though she was their sister, like, momager kind of thing Mm. where she, like, told them where to go and what to do because they were, you know, they were teenagers at the time. And, you know, Kate was 11 when this started. So she was probably, you know, 12 or 13 when this was, when they were starting to, like, really become famous. This is the most exciting thing that ever happened to anybody who ever lived in Wayne County. <laughs> yes, absolutely. This is this is the one exciting thing that happened. And see, we're still talking about it today. Um, so Leah would stay in New York and she would she would entertain callers in a seance room while Kate and Maggie took the show to other cities. Um, they went to Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh, where actually one visitor, his name was Elisha Kent Kane. He was uh, an explorer. He actually went up to the um, Antarctica. Um, he succumbed to Maggie's charms, even as he deemed her a fraud. He never believed. He was like, this is fake, but she is super cute. Um, but he couldn't prove how the sounds were made. And he said, after a whole month's trial, I could make nothing of them. Therefore, they are a great mystery. But he courted Maggie anyway. Um, she was 13 years younger than he was. And he continued, yeah. Uh, he encouraged her to give up her life of dreary sameness and suspected deceit. So he was like, why don't you get marry me and like give this all up? Because I don't think it's real. And you're not going to tell me. But why don't we do that? Really talk about really loving someone for, yeah. <laughs> for who, they, who are. they are. Yep. Um, she, of course, acquiesced because she's, you know, a teenage girl. Um, so she stopped performing, I guess we'll call it. Um, and she attended school at his behest and expense. And she married him shortly before his untimely death in 1857. Was it the spirits? Who's to say? Um, so to honor his memory, she converted to Catholicism 
Um, and he had always encouraged her to do that, even though he was a Presbyterian, because he seemed to think, apparently he thought the faith's ornate iconography and sense of mystery would appeal to her. So he was like, let's replace your spiritualism with the pomp and circumstance of Catholicism. And so that's what she did. Lots of, lots of written rules. Yeah. Yeah. They love that. Um, so she was deep in mourning because he died unexpectedly. And she unfortunately began drinking heavily and uh, vowed to keep her promise to Cain to wholly and forever abandon spiritualism. So Maggie's out. She's okay. like, I'm done with spiritualism. Um, Kate, on the other hand, she married a devout spiritualist and continued to v- develop her medium powers. Um, she would translate spirit messages in kind of really surprising and astonishing ways. And it seemed like she kept trying to like top herself. She would communicate two messages simultaneously. She would write one while speaking the other. Um, she would transcribe messages in reverse script. Uh-huh. Um, and she would use blank cards upon which words would seem to like spontaneously appear. And apparently during a session with a wealthy banker whose name was Charles Livermore, she summoned both the man's deceased wife and the ghost of Benjamin Franklin, who announced his identity by writing his name on a card. So you know it was him because he wrote his name down. I mean, no one else can do that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say both his dead wife and his lover. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awkward for everyone involved. Um, so she got to be really successful, um, but it especially boomed after the Civil War because mm-hmm. an increasing number of the bereaved found solace right. in spiritualism. Um, so she's she's kind of... She's kind of racking in some dough here. Yeah, she's making some money. Yeah, and Leah's helping her. um, And Maggie is out at this point. Um, Prominent spiritualist Emma Harding wrote that the war added 2 million new believers to the movement. And by the 1880s, there was an estimated 8 million spiritualists in the United States and Europe. It's a lot. So for a hot minute there, like spiritualism was like the up and coming religion. Um, so there were these these new practitioners, and they were kind of seduced by not only this very attractive and, you know, interesting religion, but they were also kind of seduced by the flamboyance of the Gilded Age, right? Mm-hmm. The Gilded Age is during this time. This is when people are making money, and there's a lot of, like, things happening in culture and society and art. And also these people are basically expecting miracles. You know, Kate summoned full-fledged apparitions at every seance at, at this point. Um, but it was exhausting for her, uh, both to her and the movement itself to a certain extent. And unfortunately she too began to drink. Mm. So, uh, on October 21st, 1888, the New York world published an interview with Maggie Fox in anticipation of her appearance that evening at the New York Academy of music, where she would publicly denounce spiritualism. And she was paid $1,500 for the exclusive. Um, her main motivation, however, was to get back at her sister, Leah, and other leading spiritualists who had publicly chastised Kate for her drinking and accused her of being unable to care for her two children. Oof. Yeah. So now Kate and Maggie are, are aligned. Okay. Kate was planned to be in the audience while, when Maggie gave her speech to lend her basic tacit support. So Maggie says, my sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began. At night when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor, or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. So it's basically, they would drop an apple on the floor, and because the, you know, the floor was hollow, it would kind of like ring through the room, and that's what these mysterious thuds were. <laughs> it was a fucking apple. <laughs> 
so they graduated actually eventually from apple dropping to manipulating their knuckles. Mm-hmm. They would manipulate their knuckles, their finger joints and their toe joints and just like their knees and ankles. And it would make this sharp cracking rapping sound. Um, and she said a great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spears are touching them. It's a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived on 42nd street and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. So they really took advantage of people just being like really head up and expecting things. And all they would do would be like crack their, (laughs) crack their fingers or their knees and people would fill in the gaps of what was happening. And they made a shit ton of money on this. (laughs) Julie's trying to crack her, crack her fingers. I mean, I, I can't do it like on demand. No, like, like, well, like that's it. Like they're cracked. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Now they're cracked. You want me to, now want me to like again. do this for another hour? I know, right? <laughs> like these poor girls probably had arthritis by the time they were twenty-five. So she's, you know, she's at this this music hall, and she's like, "Let me show you how it's done." So she takes her shoe off, <laughs> she puts her right foot on top of a wooden stool, and everyone's just like hushed, quiet, like, "Oh my god, what what's going to happen?" And then they heard an. Everyone heard just a number of like short little raps <laughs> and the New York, <laughs> this is best. The New York Herald wrote, there stood a black robed, sharp faced widow working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way. She created the excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. <laughs> One moment it was ludicrous. The next it was weird. So Maggie insisted that her sister Leah knew that the wrappings were fake all along and greedily exploited her sister's. And before exiting the stage, she thanked God that she was able to expose spiritualism. So this was a a death blow to the movement. In fact, the mainstream press called it the death blow to the movement. (laughs) And uh, spiritualists quickly took sides because, you know, it's it's Mm -hmm. not easy to disabuse people of their, you know, very long-held belief system. Right. So shortly after Maggie's confession, the spirit of Samuel B. Britton, former publisher of the Spiritual Telegraph, appeared during a seance to offer a sympathetic opinion. Uh, he, he apparently said, um, although Maggie was an authentic medium, the band of spirits attending during the early part of her career had been usurped by other unseen intelligences who are not scrupulous in their dealings with humanity. Um, other living spiritualists charged that Maggie's change of heart was completely mercenary, um, because she had failed to make a living as a medium like her sister did. She sought to profit by becoming one of spiritualism's fiercest critics. So they were like, she's always been a fraud. She's just jealous. She's just jealous because her sister's better at this. Um, So regardless of her motive, she actually recanted her confession a year later. Mm. And she had insisted that her spirit guides had beseeched her to to do that. Um, But unfortunately, her reversal prompted more disgust from devoted spiritualists, and many of whom failed to recognize her as a subsequent debate at the Manhattan Liberal Club. And so at the Manhattan Liberal Club, she was there under the pseudonym Mrs. Spencer, and she revealed several tricks of the profession, including the way me- mediums wrote messages on blank slates by using their teeth or their feet. Um, she never reconciled with her sister, Leah. Uh, mm-hmm. Leah died in 1890. Kate died two years later while on a drinking spree. And Maggie passed away eight months later in March of 1893. And that same year, spiritualists formed the National Spiritualist Association, which today is known as the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. 
So what's interesting is that the Fox sisters have been widely cited in parapsychology and spiritualist literature even today. Mm-hmm. And apparently, according to psychologists Leonard Zuzny and Warren Jones, many accounts of the Fox sisters leave out their confession of fraud and present the wrappings as genuine manifestations of the spirit world. So uh, remarkably, they're still discussed in parapsychological literature without any mention of their trickery, even though it was extremely public at the time that they both were like, nope, we made it up when we were kids and it just got got out of hand. And also it was like 160 years ago and yeah. there were no like actual <laughs> yeah. recorded like descriptions of everything that happened. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. So the, there is a very large swath of spiritualists who are still around today who 100% believe in the Fox sisters, um, think that they actually spoke to the spirits and that kind of thing. Also, you know, there is still, a, you know, kind of a, spiritualist kind of bent to this region. We have Lilydale, Dale, which is south of Buffalo, um, which is a very charming little town, but that's, it's where there's our, you know, there are seances and there's like medium, medium summer camp. Yeah. Medium summer camp. Everyone, all the mediums from all over the place descend on Lilydale every summer and they put out their shingle and you can go and get your palm read or talk to your grandpa or, you know, I don't know, get smudged or something. Um, but yeah, Lilydale is like a tourist attraction at this point, um, where a lot of like mediums and psychics and palm readers and anybody of their ilk kind of conglomerate. Um, so that, oh, and the reason why it's called the Fabulist Fox Sisters is because there was a musical put out in 2020 called the Fabulist Fox Sisters about their life and their, you know, their work and their tragic demise, um, so that's something I don't think it like made it to Broadway, but it's it's a thing it's to a thing. look up if you're interested. Oh, did I tell you? And mm. sorry, this is no oh, sidebar, but also a long time ago, in like July 2017, Josh and I okay. were at the French restaurant Rue in the city. That Delicious, I love, and they had the tarot card reader there. So for like ten dollars, oh, yeah. you could get your tarot read. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, I'll go do that. And the the lady, she did my cards, whatever, and she was like, oh, um, whatever your creative endeavor is, it's going to be really successful. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. I was like, what's she talking about? Like, I'm not doing any crafts. I'm not doing like mm-hmm. anything. And then. We got home and Josh was like, oh, but you guys are like launching a podcast in a week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that story. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, how about that? So clearly it was correct because we are extremely successful. We're extremely successful. We have dozens of listeners all across this incredible planet of ours. (laughs) Hey, Mauritius. Yes. Hey, Hey, Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. Hey, Philippines. We love you. Hey, Iceland. (laughs) And Ireland, there's, you know, almost 10 people in Ireland that listen to us. That's that's a lot. Um, so, yeah, so that was that was a brief and tragic tale of the fabulous Fox Excellent. sisters. And didn't, did correct me if I'm wrong, did RMSC mm. have their table? Oh, I don't no, think RMSC no, does. No, I think didn't. it's the, the Rochester Historical mm. Society does. Okay, well, we're not going to. We're not going to broach that topic on this no, podcast. We'll no, save that not for on the, this We'll save that for Rochester History Talk, our our, <laughs> our, our spin-off. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to save it for our Patreon that doesn't exist. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Lauren. 
Oh, you're welcome. So in keeping with the theme. I try to crack uh, all my things, but they were already <laughs> cracked. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, well, you know, we'll add it in post. We'll add <laughs> cracking noises in post. Just like in very low, just like constant cracking noises yeah. underneath all of my my dialogue. Um, my quiz today is on ghosts. Question number one. The ghost of this titular prince's father appears three times over the course of this famous play, each time beseeching his son to avenge his murder by his treacherous brother, Claudius. Who is this prince and subsequently the play I'm referring to? Question number two. Speaking of theater, there are a ton of theaters in London's West End, and quite a few are rumored to be haunted. However, this theater is better known for its ghosts than its plays, and is said to be haunted by more than one ghost, the most famous of which is known as the Man in Grey. What is the name of this theater where you might also find the Muffin Man? Question number three. This comic book ghost was created in the 1930s by Seymour Wright and Joe Oriolo, later gaining fame in the Harvey comic book series. He was often joined by friends such as Wendy the Good Little Witch and Hot Stuff the Little Devil. The characters were made benign and kid-friendly despite the obvious implications of death. Who is this ghost who enjoyed a revival in a 1995 film starring Christina Ricci? Question number four. The world's arguably best-known non-human ghost is a 17th-century Netherlandish merchant ship said to haunt the high seas. According to sea lore, the ship, which often appears as a hazy image or a strange light, is said to be a portent of bad luck and doom. The ghost ship has been reported on the ocean from time to time, including appearing off the coast of South Africa in 1923, but it most recently appeared in movie theaters across the country in the Pirates of the Caribbean films, captained by Davy Jones. What is the name of this ship? Question number five. Although he appears only briefly in the movie Ghostbusters, the ghost character originally known as Onion Head became famous in the spin-off cartoon series The Real Ghostbusters and had a starring role. 80s kids will remember his particular brand of fruit punch. What is the name of this ghastly green ghoul? Question number six. A horde of ghosts known as the Dead Man of Dunharo are a swarm of spirits cursed to linger under a mountain as punishment for breaking their promise of military aid to Ilsidur, the ancestor of one of the Fellowship of the Ring. In what classic book series did the Dead Men of Dunharrow appear? Question number seven. True or false? Sleepy Hollow, the setting for the Headless Horseman in Washington Irving's classic tale, is a real place. Question number eight. This terrifying ghost movie, a remake of the Japanese original, was everywhere in 2002 and scared the low-rise pants off of everyone who saw it. Starring Naomi Watts, it made viewers think twice about mysterious videotapes and little girls with long, wet hair. What movie am I talking about? Question number nine. This titular 80s movie character, named after a star of all things, is probably one of the best performances of Michael Keaton's career, while the movie itself was a huge critical and commercial success and won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. What is this movie? And finally, question number 10. This chunky purple boy is the final evolution of Ghastly and has a move called Cursed Body, where the opponent is surrounded by a circle of dark aura, preventing it from moving. What is the name of this absolute unit of a Pokemon? We'll give you a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers.
This is a good quiz. <laughs> Thank you. Quiz. I thought you would appreciate Crack it. Crack it up. Yes. Crack it up a few times. <laughs> good. All right. You ready? Let's do it. All right. Uh, the ghost of this titular prince's father appeared three times over the course of this famous play, each time beseeching his son to avenge his murder by his treacherous brother, Claudius, who is this prince and subsequently the play that I'm referring to. Now, I feel like this is one that people confuse sometimes because they're like, yes. oh, it's a one word title of a royal in a there's murder and <laughs> treachery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I believe this one is Hamlet. It is Hamlet. It is not Macbeth. I almost included a second quiz, a question about Macbeth, but I was like, no, that's cruel. <laughs> um, little known fact, I played Hamlet in college. That is a little known fact. Yeah, I was in Complete Works of Shakespeare Abridged. I was one of three people who did the entire Complete Works of Shakespeare, and I had to memorize just scores of monologues. And, and the rest of this podcast episode is here Lauren's we go. audition. To be or not to be, that is the question. <laughs> That'll be my, I will be monologuing. So this is why this episode is two and a half hours long. No, I'm kidding. Um, it was a good show. Anyway, question number two. I think I did a good job. Question number two. Speaking of theater, there are a ton of theaters in London's West End and quite a few are rumored to be haunted. However, this theater is better known for its ghosts than its plays and is said to be haunted by more than one ghost, the most famous of which is known as the Man in Grey. What is the name of this theater where you might also find the Muffin Man? I'm guessing this is Drury? Lane. Uh, Dr Drury Lane. Yes, that's what it's called. Drury Lane. It's also known as the Theatre Royale. Uh, it is one of the oldest theaters in England. It was originally bought, built, not bought. <laughs> it was originally built in 1663. Um, the man in gray is often seen as a nobleman carrying a sword. And he also appears in the daytime. And he's also seen as a good omen rather than a bad one. The All implication right. being that the play will be a success if you see the man in gray. Well, that's so. nice. Yeah, it's nice. Um, there's another haunted theater that whose name I forget in London's West End, where one of the <laughs> one of the ghosts is just a disembodied head, and sometimes it appears in the laps of people like watching the plays, like 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 I don't visitors. Like that. Yeah, and so so that that sometimes happens. So I guess I would much rather see just like a guy in a gray suit and a sword who's like, "Great job, you guys are going to go great," instead of a a gross head that just appears in my lap. <laughs> uh, question number three, this comic book ghost was created in the 1930s by Seymour Wright and Joe Oriolo, later gaining fame in the Harvey comic book series. He was often joined by friends such as Wendy, the good little witch and hot stuff. The little devil, the characters were made benign kid friendly, despite the obvious implications of death. Who is this ghost who enjoyed a revival in a 1990 film starring Christina Ritchie? Well, he's pretty friendly. Uh, and he was played by Devin Sawa in the movie. Yeah, and this is yeah, Casper. Yes, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Um, that movie like affected me. <laughs> like I was ten, I was a very sensitive child. You know the, the his little monologue where he talks about how he died, like the sled, mm. and like that really like that really brought. We had home a lot of like that. kids scaryish movies come out around that time. You know, right. I was just talking. Yeah, I was like just there's like Hocus the, Pocus, and there's yeah. um, the Adams Family. Definitely came out around then. Yeah, and that was creepy. I mean, do you remember the Brave Little Toaster? Did you ever watch the Brave Little oh, Toaster? That one is awful. It's terrible. I was like, I, I texted my sister. I was like, I'm pretty sure this is why we're fucked up. Like, <laughs> like Brave Little Toaster was a disturbing movie, and we watched it mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, the other scary one is Black Cauldron. Oh, Black yeah. Black Cauldron's scary. It's not for kids. 
What are we doing, people? I don't know. Now YouTube is like a that's oh I can't even. No, thank you. All right, question number four. The world's arguably best known non-human ghost is a 17th century Netherlandish merchant ship said to haunt the high seas. According to sea lore, the ship, which often appears as a hazy image or a strange light, is said to be a portent of bad luck and doom. The ghost ship has been reported on the ocean from time to time, including appearing off the coast of South Africa in 1923, but it most recently appeared in movie theaters across the country in the Pirates of the Caribbean films, captained by Davy Jones. What is the name of this ship? That's the Flying Dutchman. It is the Flying Dutchman. Um, the story has been adapted many times, but one of the most common versions basically says there's this Dutch captain who captained the Flying Dutchman. His name was Vanderdecken. He refused to take safe harbor during a storm while traversing the Cape of Good Hope, despite pleas from the crew and passengers. And instead, the impudent captain challenged God to take them down. And so okay. the ship was promptly cursed, and in its ghost form is damned to never find port again. So that's the Flying Dutchman. Question number five. Although he appears only briefly in the movie Ghostbusters, the ghost character originally known as Onion Head became famous in the spinoff cartoon series The Real Ghostbusters and had a starring role. 80s kids will remember his particular brand of fruit punch. What is the name of this ghastly green ghoul? Oh, that's Slimer. It is Slimer. Um, Slimer was likened to an actor known well by the film's writers and stars Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. Uh, Ivan Reitman, who is the director, remarked that the character was sort of like Bluto in Animal House, like the ghost of John Belushi in a way. Danny, who was obviously a good friend of John's, never argued with that. Even so, we never officially said that, and we never mentioned it in the script. It was just one way to look at the character because Onionhead's grossness is like Bluto's in Animal House. And this is a quote from Joe Medjuk, who is the producer of Ghostbusters. Uh, question number six. A horde of ghosts known as the Dead Men of Dunharo are a swarm of spirits cursed to linger under the mountainous punishment for breaking their promise of military aid to Ilsidur, the ancestor of one of the Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, I'm sorry. Isildur. I'm sorry, nerds. It's Isildur. Um, in, what <laughs> in what classic book series did the Dead Men of Dunharo appear? It's from your series of series, The Lord of the Rings. It is The Lord of the Rings. Um, the Dead Men of Dunharo, also referred as the Shadow Host, the Grey Host, the Oath Breakers, or simply the, the Dead. The, yeah, or the Army. Did we call them like the Army yeah, of the, the Dead? Yeah, the Army of the Dead. Yeah, they have a lot of nicknames. Um, they appear specifically in The Return of the King, both the book and the film. Yeah. Yeah. Question, they were kind of yeah. scary. They were kind of scary. I liked the like translucency of them. They had like a green haze. Mm -hmm. I mean, but they turned the tides of the war, so got to thank them. And then they got to go. Then they got and to go they were home, free. You know? They were free and they floated away with their horses. All right. Question number seven. True or false. Sleepy Hollow, the setting for the Headless Horseman in Washington Irving's classic tale, is a real place. It is now. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. <laughs> yes. Yes. True. It, it existed then and, is, and it exists now. Right. Right. Uh, well, yeah, wasn't yeah. it like Terrytown and then they changed the name to Sleepy Hollow? No, no. It's, um, it's a hamlet north of Terrytown. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's downstate in Westchester County, New York, just north of Terrytown. Um, I, by the way, I highly recommend a visit there. It's very beautiful. Um, there are several historic estates built by the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts that you can visit. Um, Washington Irving is also buried there. It's gorgeous in the fall. They have a big statue of the Headless Horseman right in the middle of the town square. It's very charming. Highly recommend for some leaf peeping in October. 
Uh, question number eight. This terrifying ghost movie, a remake of the Japanese original, was everywhere in 2002 and scared the low-rise pants off of everyone who saw it. Starring Naomi Watts, it made v- viewers think twice about mysterious videotapes and little girls with long, wet hair. What movie am I talking about? It was The Ring. It was The Did Ring. Did you see it? Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, my God, no. <laughs> I don't watch horror movies. I read the the you know the plots on Wikipedia. <laughs> That's how I find out what these things are. It is a remake of Hideo Nakata's 1998 Japanese horror film Ringu, based on Koji Suzuki's 1991 novel of the same name. Uh, Watts portrays a journalist who investigates a cursed videotape that seemingly kills the viewer seven days after watching it. Um, I remember everybody like would try to freak each other out by you know cl- like sneaking up behind people and then whispering seven days in, the, in the <laughs> And I never watched it, so it didn't freak me out because I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Um, the Ring was released theatrically on October 18th, 2002, and received mostly positive reviews. Um, critics praised the atmosphere, visuals, and Watts' performance. It grossed over $249 million worldwide on a $48 million budget. Um, it is one of the highest-grossing horror remakes, and it is the first installment of the English-language Ring series. It's followed by The Ring 2 in 2005 and Rings in 2017. You would think people would stop watching videotapes at that point, you know? Right? Like by by 2017, it's like I can't find a VC, I can't find a VCR to play this on. I guess it's I guess it's not going to kill anybody anymore. I guess it's not. It's done. the The reign of Samara is over. Anyway, uh, question number nine: This titular 80s movie character, named after a star of all things, is probably one of the best performances of Michael Keaton's career. While the movie itself was a huge critical and commercial success, and won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. What is this movie? Now I'm only going to say the name one time. So That's you have fine. to make sh- okay. This is Beetlejuice. It is. Apparently, now this is fun. They announced a sequel in February of this year yes. where Keaton and Winona Ryder are going to reprise their roles. Um, apparently, there was a sequel planned way back in 1990 called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And this is the plot is basically the Deeds family moves to Hawaii where Charles is developing a resort. They soon discover that his company is building on the burial ground of an ancient Hawaiian kahuna, and the spirit comes back from the afterlife to cause trouble, and Beetlejuice becomes a hero by winning a surf contest with magic. So so <laughs> it's shocking that it didn't get made. Um, I mean, it was they were everybody was on board to make it, but apparently production kind of stalled because um Tim Burton got huge after that and started making a ton of different movies and all of that stuff. So uh, finally, question number 10. This chunky purple boy is the final evolution of Ghastly and has a move called Cursed Body, where the opponent is surrounded by a circle of dark aura, preventing it from moving. What is the name of this absolute unit of a Pokemon? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Trash Ghost, yeah. his, original, his original form is, you said Ghastly, right? Yes, final okay. evolution of Ghastly. And then mm-hmm. we have Haunter. And okay. then you have Gengar. Gengar? It is Gengar. I know by 151. Nice job. I have nothing else to say about Gengar, honestly. <laughs> um, I had to look up all of this for this. I was like, what's a Pokemon that's a ghost? That's literally what I did. I like Googled Pokemon ghost. Um, if you want an extensive and very entertaining episode yes. on Pokemon, please go back and listen to episode 183, which was called Gotta Catch Em All, with our special guest, Michael H., who did a wonderful it job. Good. It was very good. <laughs> nice job. You got all. You got 10 out of 10. Boop, 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 you know boop, your ghost. Boop, 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 boop. Excellent. Great job, Lauren. Thanks, Jewel. 
so uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed that. I hope it wasn't too spooky. Um, but definitely. <laughs> oh, there what? you go. Oh, oh my gosh. <gasps> what is the What are the spirits saying to us? I think Julia? it's saying we'll see you next time. Well, I can't deny the spirits. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye.